This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning Best Selling Taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. I am now joined by Bill Plunkett, one of my favorite baseball writers. Bill, good evening. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Living the dream in Arizona, where it was like 55 degrees today. Oh, that's actually kind of cool, though, right, for Arizona? Yeah, very cool. Yeah, this morning, I think when the Dodgers took the took the field, first full squat workout today, I think it was probably about 45 degrees. Oh, wow. Very unusual. Weird. Yeah, very unusual. I was teasing uh, Kenley Jansen, who is a native of Curacao, an island guy, does not like the cold weather. Mm-hmm. And I asked him what the temperatures would be in Curacao at this time of year. And he said, oh, it'd be about 80. So I said, well, let's pack this stuff up and go <laughs> have spring training in Curacao. Yeah. He's on board. He was okay, okay. with the idea. Yeah. <laughs> so we can go ahead and cross off the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Cubs, uh, <laughs> the Twins for future Kinsley Jansen uh, pitching opportunities for him, right? Not a fan of cold weather. No. Okay. Interesting. Good to know. Um <laughs> Yeah, Kinsey Danson, though, a guy who seems like a really fun person to cover, right? Like, you've now covered him for a couple of years. He, he's got a really interesting story. Obviously, um, the scary health stuff is in play, but he's he's still there. Like, he's he's been around, and relievers don't usually stay around that long. And then you have, like, the Cubs situation with Pedro Strop, who developed such a great uh, presence on that team, and is just an important bullpen cog. It's interesting to see those guys, because it seems like there's so much, uh, there's a war of attrition there, and those guys just get cycled in and out, that uh, it is kind of cool to see him just still be there and be a staple in that bullpen. There, Yeah, there's, there seems to be a very short shelf life on most closers, maybe five really good years. And I've had GMs tell me that the most volatile part of assembling any roster every year is the bullpen. Mm -hmm. You may have the best bullpen in baseball one year, bring all the same guys back the next year and have the worst. Yeah. It's, it just swings very wildly from one year to the next. So a guy like Kenley who has done it, 
ooh, what now, five, six years in a row with 40, 40, around 40 saves is the exception. And he, uh, he makes no bones about it. He wants to be a Hall of Famer. He wants to be that level of guy. And last year was unacceptable to him. And, you know, you look at it, he saved 38 out of 42. It's not like he blew a lot of games. Did not pitch real well in the World Series for the second year in a row. That sticks in his craw. Uh, had a hamstring injury that kind of compromises mechanics early in the year. Then had the heart issue in August. Came back from that and, you know, just never quite found his footing. So he looks back at last year, gave up too many home runs, ERA over three first time in his career. Uh, he has a bad taste in his mouth about last year. He, he showed up this spring ready to work and, you know, vowing to be the shutdown guy again that he has been most of his time as closer. Yeah. Um, so we have something that came up today. I'm sure the Dodgers uh, players and management had their eye on what uh, was going on here. And uh, Manny Machado, a former Dodger, uh, sure now thing. San Diego yep. Padre, and got the 10 years, got the great deal. Um, so as I was thinking about this, because there's a team that just seems like the inevitable favorite in the division and it's the Cleveland Indians. That's, we always just assume like we can just pencil them in. It's like, duh, like this, this division's too bad. They're going to do it no matter what Machado could have gone in the white Sox and we'd still pencil in the Indians. And I kind of look at the NLS the same way. And now I'm getting a little n- more nervous because I'm all about the Fran Mill Reyes and uh, Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis Jr. and everything coming up in San Diego. But at, I mean, I guess it really just depends on whether or not you're a believer in uh, Rocktober doing it all over again in back-to-back years. And maybe <laughs> Ian Desmond not playing first base and going to the outfield's a, a huge step up. And maybe they uh, they reincarnate uh, Todd Helton for first. You never know. Um, or they just signed Bryce Harper and they let him play first, which is something I've been pitching uh, since uh, the winter meeting started. It's just like, can you imagine Bryce Harper at course? Like that would just be one of my favorite things ever. And everybody in baseball would love seeing that in him just hitting a billion home runs in course. It'd be great. Um, but the Dodgers... I mean, they're getting younger. They're, like Jansen's obviously still there, but this is a team that has Walker Bueller now, Ross Stripling. You still have the key cogs from those last two World Series teams, but there is it does seem like they're kind of betting on more of the younger guys to keep this sustainability going. And I wonder if we should still just be penciling them in as the the favorite before spring training gets underway, because especially like we just already forgot of how amazing it was that they came back and won- and just made the playoffs last year because of w- how they started. Like statistically, they were in a lot of trouble last summer and they found their footing. And I mean, Seager went down. And it was like, oh, God, the Dodgers are just that was it. They got their one shot. And now they're having the year from hell and um, end up just making the World Series anyway. But I don't know. Like, what is that a fair assessment of where the Dodgers are right now? I I think they are absolutely the favorites in the division. Machado doesn't change that. It just uh, it makes it more interesting going forward. Um, I, th- I think the Dodgers win the the division easily. You've got three teams that are in various stages of rebuilding: the Giants, the Padres, and the Diamondbacks, who you know traded away Goldschmidt, lost Pollock, lost Corbin last this winter. So, and, and don't sleep on the Rockies. I know this will be, this will sound blasphemous and foolish, but don't sleep on the Rockies pitching. Oh, Their starting okay. pitching was really the key 
to them taking the Dodgers down to the wire last year. Mm-hmm. They, they, they have some young arms who, who took some leaps forward last year. If they don't regress, they don't you know, get beaten up by Coors Field or have injuries. That's the key to that team. The offense always happens. Just, you know, you and I could probably uh, hit decent in Coors Field. Just, it I mean, just I'm in if you're always going to be there. I'm still, yeah, I'm, I'm I don't know still if I could, pretty spry at 27. I don't know what you're kind of yeah. shape you're in, but I think we can do it. I think we should play first place I got for the Rockies. Years on we can you. platoon. <laughs> we can platoon. Why not? Are you a lefty or a righty? I, I'm I'm right-handed all okay, the way. Okay, I'm left-handed. It's solved. Perfect. Uh, Colorado, Perfect. go ahead and sign us up. We'll platoon <laughs> for you this season. It can't be worse than Ian Desmond at first. It can't be. The thing that the, the Dodgers have done and they don't get enough credit for uh, over the last four or five years probably is, like you said, the transition to getting younger, going from a high, high payroll team to a still high payroll team, but one that's built around homegrown young yes. guys, Bueller, Seeger, Bellinger, you know, on and on. And then they've paid to retain the key guys uh, from that core, Turner, Rich Hill, Kenley Jansen. Last year, the extension with Kershaw, they weren't ready to be done with him. So they've done those things as opposed to uh, the team that's kind of a poster child warning sign to a lot of teams, the Phillies and how they let their core of Utley, Howard, Rollins, et cetera, age and get old and bloat the payroll. And they had to go completely back to the bottom and start over. And the Dodgers made that transition without the, not only without the trip to the bottom, but by while still winning six uh, straight division championships. So they should they should get more credit for that. I, I think that has been a key to why they're still competitive. The other thing that I I'm feeling this spring is the lack of a World Series hangover. Last year there was definitely a World Series hangover. Then Turner gets hit by a pitch, misses the first forty games. Corey Seager, you know, blows out his elbow, done for the year. And a lot of people were willing ready to bury him. The difference is coming out of that series with the Astros, they were still thinking October. They were obsessed with, oh, geez, we were so close. Game seven, we were probably, in their mind, they thought they were better than the Astros and should have won. Mm -hmm. You know, we should have closed out game two. We should have closed out game five. We shouldn't have, you know, fallen behind so early in game seven. That was obsessive on their mind. All they could think about was, well, all we got to do is get back to October and do it right this time. And they kind of glossed over the fact that there's like this 162 game season. You got to play in the middle in between. And there's a lot you have to grind out. And the focus wasn't as good as it was the year before this year. They look back at October against the Red Sox and be brutally honest. They know they weren't the better team Mm -hmm. and they know they were going to lose that series. They lost in five games. That's a big difference in losing in seven. So I think the the fresh start attitude this spring is much different than last year. Uh, there's you know some new faces in in the clubhouse and Pollock and Joe Kelly and Russell Martin. And I just think that that is going to get them off to a much better start, and they'll they should win the West going away. 
How is Corey Seager looking? Do you think fans should expect him to kind of just be right back to the Corey Seager of old and be an MVP type candidate in the NL? I, uh, you know, I've been doing this too long, so I'm, I'm skeptical about anything and everything. That's just mm-hmm. my default position. That being said, he looks fine. He looks like uh, the same guy. He's moving well, nothing, you know, no sign of the hip surgery. He's doing everything they're letting him to do with his arm. He hasn't thrown across the diamond yet. He's just doing, you know, long toss type throwing, uh, nothing from a weird angle that might stress the elbow. Uh, and they, the best case scenario is he's ready to go on opening day. And mm-hmm. so far, there's nothing that has not been the best case. Every step of the way has been, you know, check off this, check off that, and, and so on. So he should be ready to go, I, I suspect, more deeper into April. I suspect he'll go on a minor league rehab, get some at-bats before he's in their lineup. Now, whether he's the same player that he was, you know, that's always remains to be seen when a guy has that much rust, uh, hasn't faced competitive pitching in, you know, 11 months, whatever it'll be. Uh, but I don't see any physical sign that he can't be that same guy. So how many more times do you think this team can get as close as they have to winning a world series championship before they just have to mix and match a little bit more than like the, like letting Machado walk and bringing in Russell Martin and kind of uh, adjusting the bullpen a little bit before they're just like, this is going to wear on all these guys. If we do this again, if we run this back a couple more times, like we're obviously a great team, but just kind of moving even some of our most important pieces just because of, how much this kind of stuff can just linger in a guy's head and a team's head that you just kind of have to, you don't want to, but you kind of have to, if things do get a little topsy turvy and they don't uh, make a world series run in three straight years, because that's really hard to do to go to three straight world series. You bet and, it is. Uh, yeah. Especially losing two times before that and keeping the main core together who just have had that in the back of their mind for uh, almost four, or I guess almost 400 games. Like that's, that's just a lot. Yeah, it is. And it's mentally draining. And, and you, and personally, as a beat writer, you don't realize how long the season becomes when you play to the end like that. Yeah. I mean, we, you, you finish up, uh, you know, the series against the Astros when it goes seven, we finished up on November 1st. And I felt like I woke up the next day and had to pack <laughs> for spring training. And I yeah. know the players must've felt even, even worse about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we came here, I did a little research. Last time a team went to three straight World Series was the uh, the Yankees went to four in 98 through 01. They split them. They won two. Last time a National League team did it, you have to go all the way back to World War II. The Cardinals went to three straight in the mid-40s, and I think they won two out of three. To find somebody that went to three straight World Series, lost the first two, won the third, you have to go back to a team called the New York Yankees uh, with a guy named Babe Ruth in their lineup in 1923. They lost in 21, 22, finally broke through in 23. So it's really hard to do. Absolutely really hard to do. I think the better comp in the modern era is those Atlanta Braves of the 90s that just ruled their division. Mm-hmm. And you know, got to the World Series a handful of times, broke through and got one. It was you know, you look back on that, and it just doesn't seem like they they took advantage of the 
situation to come away with only one ring in that time. Yeah. Uh, I but think, they that, I think that the was Dodgers, the bigger thing is they never like once they were in that zone, if you go through the payrolls, cause I wrote about this was the difference between this Braves era now where they're back to contending and all that kind of stuff. Like they're not really, they're not going to go all in Liberty media is not Ted Turner. And what Ted Turner was doing was he kept them no. in that top five group for 15 years. That's how you can stay on top of your division for yeah. <laughs> over a decade. You have to spend and the Dodgers have the spending capital to uh, actually sustain that kind of like run that the Braves just will and not the, do. And the Braves had a, had a very good, I mean, the core was mostly homegrown for most of that stretch, Chipper mm-hmm. Jones, et cetera. And they added pieces almost annually Yeah, that, that were that, where they made good choices. They, they didn't go and sign a big free agent and then he flopped and dragged them down. They went out and added pieces, Greg Maddox or whoever that, you know, were good pieces that added to what they already had. I think the Dodgers are in the same position. They're in a mm-hmm. position to dominate their division until, you know, if the Padres prospects all turn out and they become a super team, well, then we had a different discussion, but I don't, you know, I don't see that happening in the immediate future. And, and the way it is in modern baseball, if you get into the playoffs annually, roll the dice. That's all you ask. You get in there, and then it's a short series after short series, and anything can happen. We've heard that plenty of times, and we heard, you know, Billy Beans, it's a crapshoot in the playoffs. That's, yeah. that's what – it's true. I mean, it was him at the time making an excuse for why his team hadn't done well in the playoffs. But it is kind of true. Very, you know, it's very slight differences between teams when you're in the postseason. And I I think that's kind of the Dodgers approach right now. We can dominate our division and we get there every year and we roll the dice and see, you know, maybe it's our year one one time at, at some point during that. It, it, I think the team that I think about even more is it's not even a baseball analogy. It's more of what the uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins did over this three year stretch where they won back to back titles. And then um, this last postseason run, they finally just they, they just were out of gas and they talked about just the wear and tear of having the same core yeah. together and the long season, the long series, because there's a difference between winning your division and then getting eliminated in the first round all the time. But going back and having a deep playoff run every single time is just, a, a, it's just really hard. And now this season, they kind of feel re- refreshed because they got eliminated early and they had extra time <laughs> to heal and re reassess things and just get healthier and kind of clear their head and get more of an off season that like, I think that's probably a like the the closest thing I can think of with this Dodgers team, where it's like they they like whenever they go, they're going all the way, and then yeah, they're, it's they're a full extra thing. month. Yeah, it's an extra month of playing, an extra month where every single game you have to go one hundred and twenty percent. It's not you know it's not an extra road trip to uh, you know Pittsburgh and Cincinnati where you kind of take it easy or you just play. Every single game, every single at bat is, you know, dialed up to 11 and that is incredibly wearing. And now, like you said, they've, they've essentially put three in a row together because the year before they took uh, the Cubs in the NLCS and that went down almost down to the wire. So Mm -hmm. it has been three really long post seasons for them. It'll be interesting. Um, I got to ask you about the Bryce Harper stuff because the Giants want to do a gigantic deal <laughs> on a one-year deal. It does seem kind of odd 
that they're not like they're not the front rider, especially when you look at just the fit with the right field situation. And I, I want to talk about him in a in a little bit. Verdugo, who was a second round pick a couple of years ago, um, but are you at all surprised they're not going not a bit. harder? Okay, not a bit. If you had. Early in the in the off season, you know, all oh, the Dodgers are the favorites to sign Bryce Harper. Those of us who are cover the team or around the team, know Andrew Friedman, hear him talk, knew that that was overblown. There is this perception outside of you know the bubble of covering the team. There's this perception that the Dodgers are this super team that can sign whoever they want and run a three hundred million dollar payroll and wouldn't even blink an eye and you know, it's the old George Steinbrenner Yankees who will sign mm-hmm. up every free agent. That is not the case. There is not an unlimited budget, no matter what they tell us on the record. There is a debt that they have to service from the purchase of the club. There are punishments in the collective, you know, or competitive balance tax mm-hmm. rules uh, that make it punitive to, to go over the tax and stay over the tax for a number of years. And it's not just Oh, you got to pay more money. It's also, you know, draft positions and, and draft picks that uh, are, are, you know, that it costs you. Uh, I don't, you know, Andrew Friedman always, uh, the last two years has told us there's no mandate to stay under the luxury tax, but I think there is a high motivation to stay under the luxury tax threshold, and it is not. They do not view long-term big money, big free agent signings as smart. And there is nothing the Friedman front office wants more than to make smart decisions. They do not want to be seen as not doing something smart. They have not bid high on free agents. Their biggest signing uh, was the extension to Kershaw Mm -hmm. last year, uh, an $80 million deal with Kenley Jansen a couple of years ago, they'll pay to sign their own guys, but they are not going to go out and go get into a bidding war for Bryce Harper or Manny Machado or JD Martinez or whoever last year's big free agent was. That's just not how they operate. They don't think it's smart to tie a $300 million pay, uh, rock to your payroll for the next 10 years. So when a lot of that stuff was coming out during the year, it it sounded overblown to me and everything I heard, you know, confirmed that what I do think they do well is they lurk. They lurk very well. Yeah. They stay on the fringes of things. They keep their fingers in things. They keep their ears open. They like talk the to this guy. Stuff. They talk to that. Yes. They, 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 they determine what they're willing to pay. Mm-hmm. how far they're willing to go with a guy, whether it's a trade, how much they're willing to give up or a contract. And they don't go beyond that. And if the market somehow brings it back to them, or if they can be a little flexible and, and make it happen, they think it's important enough, then they do it. That's what happened with the Machado trade at the deadline this year. The same thing with Darvish last year. You know, They are very good at staying around, reading the tea leaves, and than pouncing if there's an opportunity. What I think, uh, they, they were interested in Harper. They, you know, they almost uh, traded for him at the end of last year when he uh, cleared waivers in August. Oh. Uh, the, the Nash, yeah, the Nationals, you know, were waving him around. 
and the Dodgers were definitely interested and they would have made a trade for him. But at that time, then it's just like Machado. You're only taking him on for a couple months and you see what happens. Uh, I think they, that's an amazing wish though. Yeah. It would have changed things a little bit, wouldn't it? Yeah. But, and then once he's in, you know, once he's in Dodger blue, you have two months to uh, kind of woo him. If you want to call it that, not that uh, Scott Boris is very wooable, Um, but if things played out this winter where the $300 million market did not develop for Bryce Harper, and that may be the case, we don't, I, I don't know that we know yet. I think the Dodgers would have gone back to Boris and said, listen, you guys want to have, you know, the biggest contract ever. How about we give you something short term Mm -hmm. where the annual value is the highest ever. And you can spin that as a win that we got the highest, uh, you know, annual salary in, in history, but it's only, you know, for six years with an opt out after the fourth and the fifth year or something like that, uh, more, uh, creative that would not tie that 10 year rock to your payroll. Yeah. It's just like it, they do have some pseudo Tampa Bay Rays DNA in them. Friedman can't shake the Tampa Bay stuff of just like, let's get out of this before it really cripples us. Let's see if we can turn. It's, um, it's smart. Yeah. Look at the, again, the, the poster child, look at what happened to the Phillies. They had to ride out. the Ryan But they won a title. Contract. Like that's the thing. It's like Amaro can one. always yes, say, did. I won a title. Yeah. I went all in for Cliff Lee. I went all in for all these guys. Yes. It set us back, but it, it, I don't think anybody in Philadelphia is upset that they nope. got tied to some awful contracts down the stretch because they still got their ring. Like if they didn't win, and, it's terrible, but they won. And I think I think most Dodger fans, ninety nine percent of the Dodger fans, would be happy uh, to trade whatever they had to trade financially to get a, 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 a you know championship. I mean, it's been a long time yeah. out in L.A. Not since nineteen eighty eight, and we hear that constantly from fans but that's again that would not be smart and that's not the way Friedman operates yeah so do you, I guess it sounds like if Bryce Harper if his former right-hand man now in San Francisco was able to lure Bryce Harper to the bay and then you have Machado in San Diego is there any chance that Friedman in this front office adjust their plan at all or do you think as long as like it doesn't really matter what happens with Bryce at this point that they're going to stay kind of like what you said to to what their plan is or do you think that they that actually might um expedite some some moves that he may wait to hold off on until like the trade deadline and stuff like that well I think they always view the trade deadline as uh, a course correction possibility. You know, if uh, the, the Rio Muto deal, yeah. uh, very, very similar, you know, we, we, they weren't going to give up the top uh, prospects that the Marlins wanted. So they go to get Russell Martin. Let's see if he has a bounce back year. If he, you know, if uh, he, he and Barnes aren't getting it done, then in July, we can always go out and find somebody. Can I they, tell you what they're going to do? Shown, they've shown the last couple of years that, they can get who they think they need. Yeah. May not have panned out the way, you know, perfectly, but they got Machado last year. Mm-hmm. He was the best guy that moved. They got Darvish the year before when they yeah. needed starting pitching. He was the best at that time. The year before, they got Rich Hill. And at yeah. the time, 
Rich Hill was probably the you know among the best p- pitchers that moved at the that deadline. Was a crazy so they've shown thing, they the can do resurgence. that. Yeah, I mean that was yeah. what a year that was. That was just and the, everybody just going back and forth if they bought it and whether or not uh, he was going to hold up in L.A. and all. It, it, what a time it, that was three years <laughs> ago. That's wild. Um, but I, I feel like to me, what they're going to end up doing this is going to be a very Andrew Friedman Dodgers thing, and you can go ahead and uh, adjust accordingly. Uh, they're going to trade for I'll, I'll Scooter Jeanette. Yeah, they're trading oh, for Scooter see, Jeanette. That makes That's the guy. Sense. Yes, that makes perfect sense. If they assess in July that they don't have enough hitting, mm-hmm. that second base is is a black hole with Max Muncy playing TK defense at second baseman, uh, not right. great. <laughs> then they'll go out and get Scooter or or somebody who they think will do that. They have they have shown they can do that and. Uh, as far as the Padres and Giants and adjusting, if they get Harper and Machado, absolutely not. There is the other part of uh, being trying to, to do everything the smart way is there is an incredible arrogance that comes with thinking you're the smartest guy in the room, mm-hmm. and they're not going to. His name's Trevor Bauer, the by Giants. the way. Oh well, there, that's <laughs> that's a whole different category of uh, <laughs> mental. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll leave that one to the side. But read the piece on uh, SA.com by uh, Ben Ryder. I've seen some of the highlights already, and I think his rules for girlfriends is probably going to keep him single for the rest of his life. It's a wild story. He's a a wild guy, and he he revels in it. He wants to be known that that he's a wild, different guy. uh, That's a big part of it. I feel bad for him about some of it because like he didn't have friends growing up and he's really honest about that and just being kind of isolated and just never, we can go down a whole rabbit hole of Trevor Bauer. Like he, it's complicated, but there are, I think, I, I think Trevor, I think Trevor is a smart guy. I don't think he's as smart as he thinks he is, but being a smart, smart guy in a locker room is not always productive. It can be yeah. counterproductive. It, it's the old, uh, Stop thinking you're hurting the ball club from Bull Durham. I mean, it's uh, it, there's a certain level that you uh, just get in your own way. I agree. Um, so Alex Verdugo, who we can now just coin, not Bryce Harper. I think Dodgers fans would just call him not Bryce Harper uh, for 2019. <laughs> um, we'll be in right field, it looks like. Do you nope. think? Nope. Or no, nope. no. Nope. Cody Bellinger. Oh, so he's playing be first the then. Primary that will be uh, Max Muncy, David Freeze uh, against lefties, and maybe some Bellinger. But most of Bellinger's playing time is going to come in right field. Interesting. And that means, okay. and Pollock is going to be probably the everyday center fielder yep. as long as he can stay healthy, which means left field Jock is, Peterson. Verdugo's, is really Verdugo's only route to the big league, and he is blocked by Jock Peterson, who has been, well, last year at least, terrifically productive against right-handed pitching. So if you, you know, in the ideal world, you would want a right-handed piece to pair with him. And Verdugo is left-handed. So he is, for the for the third year in a row, he's really blocked. Yeah. And this is a guy who's hit 320 in AAA the past two years with an 8, I think an 830 OPS. Point, right? Like, or you got to yes, move it. If yeah. you send, if you send him back to AAA, or if you bury him on the bench to a lesser extent, he will regress. Mm-hmm. He is, uh, you, know, you know, knowing his personality, 
he will be ticked off and he will regress. And the fact that you send him back to AAA will be seen as a signal to other teams that maybe he's not as good as this top prospect label that he has, and that hurts his uh, trade value. So it's it's a that is one of the top stories that I'm interested in watching play out in spring training. And I I talked I to Alex this him morning in. about. It. I assume they were going no, to have to do no, that. No, 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 no. Bellinger in right field mostly. Oh my god, that's going to be weird. There's a lot of. I mean, this is the Dodgers, and there's a lot of moving parts every year. This year is no different. You mm-hmm. got, you know, Hernandez and Taylor at second base, but they're both right-handed, so that's not really a platoon situation. Muncie shouldn't play second base, but he might because he would give him a left-handed option. There. And you wrote about this last year. You wrote about the Muncie at yeah. second base. Yeah, stuff. we did. And I just talked to Dave Roberts about it again today because when they took the field for the workout today, Muncie was taking ground balls at second base for a while. Huh. So it... Dave, Dave called it a possibility. I don't think so. I think Kike Hernandez will emerge as the primary second mm. baseman. He was really good in the second half offensively. Yeah, that's Seemed what it's going to come down out. to, right, is how the offense is yeah. performing. And he's he believe me, he is fantastic on defense, second base being his most natural position, but mm-hmm. he is a fantastic defender wherever they put him. So I think they're going to want him in the lineup more often than, say, Chris Taylor. You got the other moving part. If Seager isn't ready on opening day, one of those two guys has to play shortstop. So that changes the second base pick. Let's try Muncie at short. And, Let's just keep moving him oh, over. <laughs> we don't need to see that. I, we all need to see it. Him or David Freeze at like 63 years old? Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> then you got left field. And who knows how uh, that how that p- plays out. So, yeah, the Verdugo story this spring is going to be very interesting to watch. It kind of reminds me of Austin Riley in Atlanta right now, where now he's taking um, outfield um, fly balls and he's getting some work out there with uh, Coach Young. And you're like, because he's blocked now at third with Donaldson and Camargo. Yeah. And he's blocking the outfield with Marquecas being back. And he mashed in AAA last year. And you're like, where are you really going to send this guy down there for a full year? I mean, I guess you could go full Toronto and just keep your best pros- hitting prospect down forever. Um, I, are we sure that Vlad Guerrero Jr. will ever be in the big leagues? Uh, I'm not so sure. Um, <laughs> I, I, gotta, I think I it's fascinating. I got a Vlad Jr. story for you. Okay. I, I used to cover the Angels for several uh-huh. years and part of it during Vlad Guerrero's career. And there was uh, a family day where the after the game, the Angels game, they all stayed and they had a picnic on the, the sidelines and the kids, you know, the little kids were going up to hit, uh, you know, wiffle balls and stuff like that. And the regular PA announcer was there announcing, you know, the kids' names for fun over the, the stadium PA. And we were, this is just a joke, but when they announced, and now Vlad Guerrero Jr., at least six kids of varying ages went to the bat rack. Vlad had a lot of kids. Okay. <laughs> they all they all seem to be named Vlad Jr. So I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure which one this is. Okay. Who was the other <laughs> baseball player who kept is there or who am I thinking of? Maybe it was a boxer? Who was it who kept name Oh, was it George, uh, George Foreman. Foreman? Yeah, yeah all George Foreman. Right. Um, yep. Oh my god. Interesting. Well, one of them turned out to be a superstar. So there Yeah, you go. one of them must have he must have been the one who won the race to the bat rack and got the hit right. more often. Um 
are do you think the Dodgers are counting on AJ Pollock to be healthy for the full year, or do they like have this? That's part of the appeal of keeping Verdugo up. It's just like there's no way he stays healthier. Peterson has a great year. Maybe they're just planning on him having some sort of consistent role because just once the season gets underway, they'll kind of have to shoehorn him in somewhere, especially too, because they lost two of their outfield pieces last year to Cincinnati and Puig and uh, Matt Kemp, who had the Renaissance year. So maybe that's what they're thinking, right? Like just there's something's going to happen. They do not expect anybody to play 150 games. I mean, they, they have great depth and they're not afraid to use it. Uh, Last year was a terrific example. I don't remember uh, all of the the exact figures, but last year they only had two position players get as many as 520 plate appearances, Cody Bellinger and Chris Taylor, and they did it while playing multiple positions. They had the most pinch hitters in the National League, the fewest complete games by position players. There's a number for you. It was like only 910 complete games because they moved guys around from position to position within the game uh, so much. And it's the same thing now. If Pollock stays healthy and productive and can play 130 games plus, fantastic. If not, well, Cody Bellinger moves back over to center field and Verdugo plays uh, right, or Chris Taylor, Kike Hernandez, start soaking up uh, some playing time in center field. Plenty of options. So they're in a position to absorb it or to take a chance on Pollock maybe more than somebody else who signed him and needed him to play 150. Uh, but if he plays, you know, every day and stays healthy and productive, they're fine with that. Who is the real Austin Burns, the Austin Barnes from 2017 or the Austin Barnes from 2018? Somewhere in between. Okay. So that, that nether world in between two, 208, whatever he hit and 290 mm-hmm. that he hit the year before, somewhere in that nether world. Uh, and I don't know that we're going to find out this year. I still think, I think he and Martin will split it close, but I think Martin will probably be in the lineup a lot more than, uh, than Austin, say nine, 90 games versus 70 for Austin, maybe a hundred games. If things go well, the thing they like about Russell Martin beyond the minutia of analytics, they think that his, uh, launch angle, he had a bit of a negative angle of the phrase that, uh, I think Friedman used uh, that he hit the ball on the ground too much, basically. Mm-hmm. And they think their new hitting coach can, can help him fix that. And they liked that. He still hit the ball. His heart, his contact rate was, was good. His hard contact rate was good. Uh, he still took uh, pitchers deep in counts and had good at bats. They just resulted in too many ground outs. So they like all those little building blocks and this team's offense changes. The lineup changes when Justin Turner is in it, not just because of the production, but the type of at-bats that he has. Very grinded out professional at-bats that wear down a pitcher. If he's in the lineup, that tends to spread, and you get other guys going up there having the same kind of at-bats. Russell Martin's another guy who injects that into the lineup. He, you know, he has good professional wear-down-the-pitcher type at-bats. And it tends to, you know, kind of catch on elsewhere in the lineup. AJ Pollock, I, I believe, is the same kind of hitter. Corey Seager, now that he'll be back in the lineup, similar kind of kind of hitter. And they hope that it, you know, kind of 
infects the rest of the lineup with guys like Bellinger, who really gave away a lot of at bats last year when he was struggling. You know, he he would be in and out of there in two three pitches and get nothing out of it. So that's part of what Martin brings beyond, uh, you know, what they say is is really good skills behind the plate still. Yeah, um, it's it's gonna be fascinating. So the last two things I want to touch on before we get out of here, real quick. Um, do you think they're betting on too many of their young starting pitchers to hit around Kershaw and uh, and Rich Hill? Or do you think Stripling and Bueller, especially Bueller, just the amount of innings that he pitched last year um, across all the different leagues he was in, um, do you think that they're putting too much pressure on them to kind of step right back into that role and be as good as they were a season ago? And then the final question, what is the best thing about uh, going to a Dodger game? Uh, well, it's not the Dodger dogs. Okay, and it is it is not to drive up the five freeway that right. I make every day. Uh huh. I think if you're if you're a player, especially, I think it's the fact that there are forty five thousand people in the stands every night. Yeah, there are number you one know, points, I, I think, in the NL yeah, and it's night after night, and the enthusiasm is there, and the energy is there, and then we go on the road, and I, you know, we go into some of these other towns. I won't mention you, Miami or Cincinnati, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and you get. 12,000 people in the stands and it's a different atmosphere and a different energy. Uh, and I think the players who play for the Dodgers don't realize how good they have it. So that would be my answer to that. Uh, the pitching, uh, their starting pitching is the strength of this team. I would not worry about that at all. They are eight, probably eight or nine deep and you will see every one of them during the season. Uh, you go you, on opening day, they probably go Kershaw, Bueller, uh, Hill, Rue, Maeda. That means that, that Caleb Ferguson, who showed well last year, good young pitcher, is not in the rotation. That means Julio Urias, who was the top pitching prospect in baseball before his shoulder. I forgot injury. about him, too. And he's, yes, what, like 16 he now? Back. Yeah, it feels like it. He should be 40 as many yeah. times as I've had to write about it. Uh, he's healthy now. He's back from the shoulder. He pitched well in the bullpen last year. I think he pushes his way into the rotation somehow. Ross Stripling was an all-star last year, and there's right. no room for him in the rotation. He will probably be the long man out of the bullpen. That's at wild. Least to start the year. So that's that's eight eight guys right there. And most teams are in camp right now looking for their fourth and fifth. So they, they, you know, their depth is the envy of 29 other teams. Don't worry about them. So if something happens, there are pieces to plug in. And they don't handle starting pitching the old way. Don't think of this as a five-man rotation where five guys are going to make, you know, they hope make 30 to 35 starts. That is not happening. It is eight guys who will make, I don't know, minimum 10, 10 to, to 25 starts each, and they'll add it up that way. I don't remember the exact number, but the last two years, they have had, I think it's less than 50, maybe less than 60 games each year started by guys on regular rest. They found ways to get guys extra days rest before their starts 100 times, 110 times. They put guys on the DL for a hamstring or a, you know a hangnail, just as a way to kind of set them off to the side, let them rest for ten days. They manipulate that better than anybody, 
uh, and it keeps the, the starting rotation fresh. And it is not, you know, you're not asking five guys to throw 250 innings. So don't worry about their starting pitching. It's the, it is going to be the strength of the team. Okay. Actually, I lied. I have one last final thing. Um, Fire away. You can, uh, you can ask uh, Mr. Jansen about this tomorrow if you'd like. Um, how excited is he to, to open at least 14 games for the Dodgers this season? He's got to be excited, <laughs> right? I teased him about that the other day because uh, he, last spring they, they really took it easy on him. Mm-hmm. They thought he had pitched an awful lot in the postseason the year before and we'll just slow play him in the spring and, and ease his workload that way. Well, that backfired. It was, he got a hamstring. He didn't pitch enough to get his mechanics locked in and he got off to a terrible start. So I've been teasing him this year, no more vacation. You got to, you got to come to Arizona ready to work. And, mm-hmm. and he said, yeah, maybe I'll be the, the, uh, uh, the starter in the cactus league opener. And I said, Oh yeah, you could be the opener. And he goes, kind of paused quiet for a minute he went nah i ain't doing that (laughs) oh my god it's gonna be interesting how this continues um especially a team like the dodgers who like we just talked about have a bunch of depth there and there's there's a reason to do it if you're like the rays and you had like two healthy starting pitchers at one point in the season you're just like we have to do something you have to get creative in that situation but if you have madison Gardner out there you don't have to do that That's that's why his uh, reaction the other day was so overblown. The way people, oh, oh, he wouldn't even show up. They wouldn't do it that day. There's no reason to if it's Madison Bumgarner or Kershaw or Hill or Rue or Maeda or Bueller. They they don't need to do it with those guys. They did it last year uh, twice when they were having problems with injuries and were you know calling guys up from AAA to start. Well, there's no reason to shove that guy out there from pitch one. Yeah. All right. So you told me you had a feature you're working on. Is there anything you'd like to, to plug before we get out of here? Uh, well, this is uh, this is for probably a couple of days down the line. I okay. did. Uh, I talked to Martin and and Austin Barnes about the offense and uh, asked Friedman about the you know is he prepared for a significant drop off offensively uh, without Yasmani Grandal? So. We're writing about that. Talked to Verdugo this morning. You'll see that one coming online pretty, you know, within the next couple of days. And I talked to Julio Urias. You might see that one tomorrow. Just about, you know, his uh, coming into spring healthy for the first time in two years and what his immediate future looks like. Okay. All right. Well, we'll look out for it. Bill, this has been fantastic. Uh, let's touch base when the Dodgers do something crazy like trade for Scooter in a couple months. Let's, let's touch base then. <laughs> Or sign Bryce Harper next week. Oh, my God. I'd be here for it. Or the Braves could <laughs> because uh, Nick Markakis, not actually better than uh, than Bryce Harper. Just uh, just throwing that out there. Hot take. I know. Hot, very, very hot. Hot sports take. I know. I know. <laughs> All right, Bill. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. You got it. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas Podcast. I am now joined by the Athletics Detroit Red Wings writer, Max Boltman. Max, good evening. How are you, sir? Hey, Chase. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. You told me you were cooking chili uh, before we started recording. What uh, what kind of chili? Do you have like a recipe that you uh, created yourself, or is it uh, just something that you're cooking tonight? No, I wasn't cooking chili. I, I had chili for lunch. 
Oh, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> that was just okay. that was just at the arena, though. I just got some of the uh, arena chili. Wait, so you're doing you're doubling up? What? The chili that you're you had it early? Oh, you you just had it earlier for lunch today. You're not actually at the arena for anything tonight, and just getting chili again? No, no, I had I had chili for lunch about eight hours ago, and I think I had enchiladas for dinner about an hour ago. <laughs> Okay. All right. A lot of heavy food. There you go. Tell my girlfriend. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. She cannot listen to the podcast. (laughs) Or I'll just cut all this. I'll I'll cut the whole part about the chili and enchilada stuff. Um, but you know, you I had Waffle House for lunch, so we all all can't be perfect. We're all on the same page. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's it's one of those days. It's Tuesday. That's what you do. Um, so speaking of being at arenas, hockey arenas specifically, uh, you cover a team that uh, is not good at hockey anymore. They have a very storied history, but uh, this season, not great. Um, I know this is, might be kind of a loaded question, but why do the Reds? <laughs> why do the Red Wings really suck this year? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like a it's a dimensional question, right? Like number one, you know, the, the premise of like, do they suck? Like, I don't know, man. Like, like at the end of the day, these are NHL players. You know what I mean? Like they're NHL players. They're in a lot of, you know, one goal games. I don't think that they're as far behind the rest of the league as sometimes it's convenient to, to say about any bad teams. I mean, even the senators are like, they have two elite, elite players, you know, and they're like, far and away in last place in the NHL. So I, I think that they're, they lack, they lack a superstar scorer and they lack a number one elite top flight defenseman. I think they have a lot of like core to depth pieces on the roster. I think Dylan Larkin's moving into elite two way center territory. Um, but if you're going to have one of those, you know, like, you know, the best ones in the game I could think of off the top of my head would be like Patrice Bergeron. And you, and you know, if you want to throw it back a little bit more to, to his prime, Jonathan Taves, like both of those guys have elite, elite scorers. And that's the reason their teams are good. You've got David Pasternak, you got Patrick Kane, you know, Brad Marchand's another like incredible player. And, and you add that into some, some of the guys, some of the, the guys that these guys play with. And, you know, Larkin, I think he is not on that level as those two guys I just mentioned, but like that's you know that's the model that you would use if you're trying to figure out how to build a winner with him, and they don't have those complementary pieces that those teams you know a Chicago or a Boston ha- have had. I think that's where you see like the Red Wings struggling, and like you know I I you know I certainly understand like they're not like good team right now, but I think what what is really interesting about them is how you you watch them every night and you do see okay these are the areas of improvement and it just is this persistent lack of that game breaking talent and probably not just one of them that other teams have uh, that they don't. And they still manage to be in tons of one goal games. They lose a ton of really close ones, whether it's, you know, they a comeback falls short or they blow a third period lead. And, and that's really the common denominator seemingly every time is just that one or two, superstar talent. I mean, it's two, right? Two or maybe, you know, I don't know, however you want to qualify it. It's those superstar talents that right now they, they don't have to measure up with some of the other teams in the league. Most of the other teams in the league. Do you think this team is in for a long rebuild? Because I feel like 
just kind of the scuttlebutt last year was, okay, like we have to determine whether or not Ken Holland is the right guy to go through a rebuild. And it doesn't seem like he's someone who's going to go through a full measure like that. And that this team was going to do a series of half measures to kind of get back in to contention because they have a new arena. Like they built a new arena and they want people to go and they want people to enjoy Red Wings hockey. Like it's still attendance is good for them. And like the, a full teardown would be really difficult to swallow. Right. When you build this great new arena and you move out of the Joe and all that kind of stuff is, is this something that is going to just need a, a long rebuild? Do you think that's in play here? Um, I mean, they definitely need a rebuild. Like, so I, I get tripped up by the line of like the arena filling line. I, I think it's true in sports in general. People want to make a big thing about it with LCA. I think it maybe holds a little more true for the Pistons in this case than it does the Red Wings. Like I don't think the Red Wings I I don't think that they've gone they've dived as deep and di- as directly into the rebuild um, as they should have. Uh, over the last couple of years, but I don't think it's been about the arena at all. I think, I think there, it's about their beliefs on what winning culture is and what it, you know, the, the significance of it for an organization. Like they're not making moves saying like, you know, we got to fill the seats in, in the LCA. I think number one, <laughs> rather than fill the seats, they just change the seat colors. Um, but number two, I think I, I think that's a deep-seated belief in the organization. A lot of people don't like it. I'm not saying whether I think it's correct or not. I'm just saying I think that's where these things come from, is they want to compete because they think that that's how an organization does achieve that level of success, is by, you know, you establish this culture that, hey, you walk into the, to the rink every night and you plan to win and you expect to win and you only can get there by having one. And I think... That, if anything, would be the source. Like it's it's signing these veterans to help keep um, that what they what they feel is a is a culture organizational culture alive. More than I think it's anything about um, butts and seats. And it seems like they're going to be pretty active at the trade deadline this year, right? Like they had a big move last year that brought in, I believe they didn't. It was it a first or a second they got back last year in the. Um, uh, I'm blanking on his name right now. Tatar. Uh, it was actually that... a first and a second and a third. So yeah, that was a deal they got yeah. all three of those picks back for Thomas Tatar. Yes. And now you have another option this year of being active because they have a lot of intriguing pieces that a lot of other teams are going to be interested in, contending teams, all that kind of stuff, teams that are on the bubble. Um, do you think they are sellers again and they acquire more picks while also not tearing it all the way down? Who gets moved? They're definitely sellers again. I mean, so the question is to what degree will they make all these moves? Right. Like, like the sort of the smoke coming out of, you know, the Red Wings right now, what the message has been that they are interested in re-signing multiple of the guys that I think I and most others assume will or perhaps maybe should be traded. Like that would be Gus Nyquist, Jimmy Howard, Nick Jensen. Now I have kind of come around over the last six to eight weeks to the idea that actually Nick Jensen probably does make a lot of sense to resign because he can be had for fairly inexpensive um, and he's still pretty early into his career. I I think the analytics are great on him and I think they probably hold up just by virtue of, you know, he's 28 and pretty cost effective. Like even if he's a five, six 
defenseman for a while, like a, like a number five or number six. Um, like, you know, I don't think you're gonna have to pay the kind of rate that I mean, certainly not the kind of rate they're paying for their five, six defenseman right now. Right. Like they've got guys, you know, in those roles that are over three, $4 million. So I, I think that he's a guy that there's value there. Not to say those contracts should be the norm. Cause I think everyone can look at the contracts. Um, some of the contracts earnings have it and see that, you know, it's not, it's not a winning formula to, uh, to replicate for some of those contracts, but Nick Jensen's a guy who I think makes some sense. That's a long, uh, you can go read my stories if you want to get all into that. But I think I would be a little bit surprised if Gus Nyquist doesn't go. Um, you know, he, he's having a career year, and so I kind of feel like he's done about everything that he could have done to uh, to boost his own market. I mean, he's got a no-trade clause, and he's got a wave for anything that's going to happen, but I'd be a little surprised if, uh, if there's not something to be done with him. The most interesting one is Jimmy Howard, because I think they probably – it probably would be in their best interest to have him on the roster next year. He's an unrestricted free agent after this year. So that tends to make you lean toward, okay, are they going to try to trade him and then sign him again? Do they just keep him and extend him? Like, I, I think, I think most people. Well, isn't the interesting thing with him though, is he's already been on record saying he doesn't want to move. Like he's invested in Detroit. He's been there. He was drafted by them in 2003 that he's, he's happy in Detroit like he's okay with the losing and he's okay with the struggle because I mean he's making 5.5 million he has the the wife he has the everything there he's like I isn't that like a big reason as to why they wouldn't trade him is the fact that he is he's totally fine not getting moved I haven't heard Jimmy say he's okay with the losing um but I mean I I don't think you're gonna not trade somebody if you get a good offer for him just because they like it where you like Otherwise, no one would ever get traded unless they were demanding it, right? Like, but I think there is something to be said for the fact that if they want to bring him back and they really don't have like any goalie prospects that are within two years, uh, if you want to bring him back, then that's I think where it would come from. Like, I'm, I'm, I don't think I see a world where like someone offers Irving a first round pick and they're like, "Sorry, he's happy here." Like, I don't. That's not going to happen. So. Yeah, well, I think it's more of like they don't want to screw him over because he's just kind of like a Red Wings lifer where they're not going to send him somewhere where he doesn't want to go and that kind of stuff. Like, they, you have to be a little bit more conscientious of moving somebody like Howard. Maybe that's just all it is of just like you're not – because he has a no-trade clause, right? I don't think he has a no-trade clause. That, that would be news to or me. he does it. Okay. Um, but, I, but I, you know, to, to your point, I do think that they want to work with you. Like, I, you know, they respect everything that he's been a part of for the organization and – you know, it, he is 35 and spent his whole career with, with with that franchise. So I don't think, you know, to to your point, I don't think it's a situation where they're like trying to screw him over or anything. But but I also don't think it's gonna, you know, if the if there's a really good offer on the table, I I would be surprised if if they turned down like a first round pick just because you know they felt like he really liked it in Detroit. I think if you know the the converse is like if you really like it in Detroit, go somewhere for six weeks and. and you know, they'll see on July 1st kind of thing, uh, which normally I hate that. So Cat Friendly says one, he does have, they have clause details for him. Cause I thought I remember reading that is that he lists 10 teams. He can be traded to. I'm on Cat Friendly right now. I don't, I don't see that. He had a modified That's through right. 2018, but as of maybe 2018, 19, I don't believe that there's anything there. 
Interesting. Okay. Maybe that's all it is. Okay. I thought that was a thing. Okay. Well, that makes it easier. But either way, um, okay. That could be interesting. Um, last thing I want to talk about with the Red Wings. Do you think Ken Holland, who has had a very tumultuous, interesting run so far as GM, do you think his job is safe no matter what for the foreseeable future? <laughs> so he's got one year left on his contract. So it's like, yeah, I don't know what that. I don't really know what that question, uh, you know, I, I assume you're getting an Iserman there. The Iserman stuff was just so weird with the way he left that team. Like he built just this, uh, and then we're going to talk about the lightning in a second. Like he just built this juggernaut and then he just left. And I, I don't know. Like, does, is that the thing is Iserman? Cause wasn't that the rumor before the season got started? Like that's why he was leaving Tampa Bay is he was going to go to Detroit and save Detroit hockey? Well, you know, Steve's family, Steve's family lives here, right? So the the what I, the official word, as far as I'm aware, is Steve wanted to have more time for his family, and it was going to be hard to do that yeah. as a GM. Um, now his family's in Detroit, so I think I think where that goes is, okay, can Steve Eisenman really stay out of hockey? And if he wants to be in hockey, the only place he can do that that's, you know, really with his family is Detroit, right? So... I think that's where that comes from. I don't think it's, you know, out of left field or whatever. I think it's really easy to connect those dots. But I also think like, you know, everyone wants to have this idea in their head that, the, you know, that the plan is already, you know, the deals in the drawer or whatever for how it's going to go down. I, I would, everyone I talked to about this, it, you know, is sort of just as curious about what's going to happen. Uh, nobody's really, you know, certainly people can make predictions based on connecting the dots, like I'm saying, but like, you know, I, I can still have a year on his deal. I think, you know, there's a lot that's still going to happen before there's any clarity on, on, on his future. You know, it's it's not the answer anybody wants to hear, I don't think, because everyone wants to know for a fact, like, what's the future going to look like? But the answer, it's still, you know, hazy. Yeah, I mean, so he's been living in Detroit since he left, right? Like, so he's in the area. I don't. I mean, I don't know the answer to that. Like, that was just, you know... That's the the word was he wanted some more time with his family. That's you know how I would how I would believe it. But you know, like I don't have I'm not at uh, barbecues at the Iserman residence, so I couldn't confirm <laughs> where he's been spending. Not his, yet. Where he's been spending his time. Not yet. And the reason I like the Holland stuff, even though he is in the last year of his deal, it's more of just like he's just been there for so long. I just don't think about it like that. Where you just assume he's just gonna he's gonna be around. Who is that? Ken Holland. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think people have wanted to kind of, you know, make that a foregone conclusion. It's not a foregone conclusion to me. Like, right. That's why I was yeah. just like, I don't know. Like, I don't feel like his seat should be considered hot, even though it's the last year of his deal. Cause it's like, this guy's been there forever. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a lot of frustration in the fan base and I don't think it's unwarranted, but I think, you know, there's, it's a, it's a multifaceted conversation, you know, like it's, I think, there's some prospects right now that depending on how they do, you're going to know we're going to have a lot better view. I mean, for one, Ken Holland's legacy is largely cemented by what he already did even before the rebuild. Right. But, but his legacy as it pertains to the rebuild. Well, I do think you can pretty clearly go circle some places and be like, maybe these were spots where they tried to hang on too long. I mean, certainly these were spots that tried to hang on too long, but there's no doubt the overall legacy when it comes to the rebuild will probably not be written until a few of these top prospects right now 
um, reach what they are. And at that point, it may be perfectly fair to look back and say, you know, that wasn't what it was, that, you know, that wasn't it. Um, or, or we may look back on it and say, you know, there was toward the end there, he, he really pulled out some, some stuff. And I, I'm, you know, I, I know people are frustrated with him, so I'm not trying to, you know, cape for the guy or anything like that. But I think, I just think Ken Holland's legacy is, you know, part of it is very much defined and part of it, we're going to still see uh, a little bit where, where it heads. Yeah. So let's move to the Lightning, who are just destroying everyone, them in Toronto with their offensive firepower and everything. We're just going to outscore you and we're going to murder you and we're going to use Kucherov, um, who had like five goals or five points last night, um, three goals, like two assists. Like he's just, a, he's he's an insane person. Um, is there anyone who can match what the Lightning can do where Steve Stamkos is just on the outside looking in, you kind of just forget he's there sometimes. And um, they have the young potential superstar goalie. They have all of these reasons to just be like Steve Eisenman's built his winner. They, they've lot they they're in kind of cap hell because they've locked up all their guys because they have a bunch of talent. And they they're gonna ha- they're gonna be in an interesting situation next year with their um with their situation with their second line. Uh, <laughs> there's a big restrictive free agent, a guy that Steve Eisenman picked out um, who people just thought he was too small and now he's really good and they're not probably going to be able to afford him. But before they even have to get to that oh, point, Toronto's going to I don't think there's any doubt. They'll, they'll keep point. There's, they'll make the space. I mean, he's, he's really? one of the, oh yeah, there's okay. no doubt. He's been one of the you know 15 best players in the NHL this year, if not more. There's no way they're letting him walk. Interesting. I mean, like the they're gonna be it. It's, you pay for it because it's it's worth it, and they're an amazing team. But it, yeah. I mean, I guess it would be kind of crazy for him to walk, but um, or for them to let him walk. Yeah, exactly. Do you think there's anyone? Now. Yeah, and I mean, they found like he was a guy that people wrote off. Like it was his size thing, and he grew like I think a couple inches after he got drafted. Um, because I think he was like five eight when he was drafted, and he's like six feet or something now, right? Isn't that the story? I don't know, but I know he's really, really good now. Yes. It turns out, like, these teams that just refuse to draft the shorter guy, and the, the Flames will talk about uh, a certain player on that roster who has a chip on his shoulder that works out. But um, is there anyone in your mind that can match what the Lightning can do right now? Yeah, No, but um, that doesn't mean I think the Lightning are guaranteed to win it. So, to your point, they're absolutely loaded. Like, they have talent up and down the roster, the kind of talent you should not be able to stockpile – not like you know normatively. I don't think it's a problem. But I just think it it logically should not be possible under the salary cap era. But you find these gems like Braden Point, like Nikita Kucherov. You get Kucherov on a crazy value deal. Steven Stamkos signs for for his deal, which I think everyone can agree uh, looks pretty team favorable now. Like all these guys, it's like how do you assemble this much talent? No one can match that. Period. But you know they've had pretty much the same roster and weren't able to do it last year. Um, you know, obviously guys take steps forward, whatever. I don't think they're locked for the Stanley cup because there's so much parody in hockey that you get into the playoffs. Washington can beat you. Boston can beat you. Toronto can beat you. Pittsburgh has Sidney Crosby still, you know, it's, I mean, if they even get in, which is crazy. Um, and you go over the other side and, and Winnipeg's got some really interesting talent. They could get into a shootout with you. Like Nashville has, you know, this incredible top four defense. So, no one, absolutely no one can match Tampa's talent. But could someone beat him in a seven-game series? Of course. Is Kucherov undoubtedly the best player in hockey this year? 
this year, yeah, I think that's I think that's clear to me. I mean, well, I I still take McDavid if I'm building a team for this year, but right. like having most impressive season, yeah, no no question. Okay, how long do you think this window is? For this group, how long is their title continuing window? Because they've been in the finals a couple times now. They've been contending for what four or five years with this group. Um, how long is their window? Yeah, uh, let me pull up their page and see when everybody's deals are up. It's not. It's not closing. You know, imminently. Like, you know, points going to get paid, and that's going to be a thing. But Ryan Callahan's deals up after next year. That should free up a lot of the difference. Um. Let's see. Strawman's going to be up. Girardi and Coburn. I mean, like, you don't want to lose Anton Strawman. You still got Vasilevsky on a uh, team. He's going to need to get paid in 2020. They got a few years. Like, I mean, and, and part of the thing is when you have, like, a talent like Kucherov, uh, you know, he, you're going to have the window as long as he's elite. You know, you're going to have the window as long as Braden Point's right. elite. You're going to have the windows, you know, if Mikhail Sergachev can be what they hope he is, you know, as long as, you know, they got Ryan McDonough and Victor Hedman, although McDonough's deal goes up pretty significantly after this year. I don't think that maybe they have a window to be as good as they are this year ever again, but like the drop off still brings them down to the point where they're one of the two or three best teams in the NHL. And it doesn't hurt that the Eastern Conference is, uh, it's not like, Outside of the Maple Leafs who are coming, it's just uh, the Sabres, maybe if things continue to go right for them, um, they'll be there. The Islanders are a fun story, but like you, the Penguins are on the downward turn. The Flyers about to undergo a bad rebuild. Uh, the hur- Hurricanes basically have the Atlanta Thrashers front office now. Um, the Devils obviously on a downward turn. The Rangers are taking a long-term approach. It's just, it seems like there's no one just kind of sneaking up behind them. The Maple Leafs have to get out of the first round. Like that's just their priority. Number one this year is just to get out of the first round. And I, I it just feels like the lightning are just going to be there for several more years. Like you kind of outlined. Right. Exactly. And you know, everyone ages. So that's the, the Crosby and Ovechkin thing is, you know, it's supposed to be them forever. And now that forever is ending. And so, you look at the Maple Leafs. But it's and, felt and, like forever. I mean, they well, got a yeah, decade plus out of it. That's what yeah. it's all about when you get generational talents, right? Like, yeah. t- Toronto, like, you know, that should be forever as long as they can keep everybody and, you know, find that elusive top defenseman. Although Morgan Eilish having an unreal year. I probably shouldn't even say that. He's, he's been that. But, you know, I, I think, yeah, Tampa's going to be there for a long time. And then one day we're going to look up and be like, oh, even Sam Coase is old. Nikita Kucherov is, is finally on the other side of the Zenith, like at some point that's going to happen. It, it could happen. You know, if, if the defense starts, suddenly starts to drop, if, you know, Victor Hedman doesn't have everything that makes him Victor Hedman one day or, or Vasilevsky goes away. Like hockey's fickle, man. And, uh, so yeah, it, I certainly think that they're going to be, you know, right there for a long time, but man, it feels like things change fast. Yeah. If there was one weakness or one critical flaw with this team this year, what would you say it is? I don't know if I have one. Like, yeah, I, I would say like inconsistent. Maybe goal goaltending. Maybe like you could see a series where it just gets away from him. Sure, and that, yeah. I mean, that's all. You're right. That's always possible in the playoffs. But like, same time, like how many goalies are you taking over Vasilevsky? Like, you get fantasy draft. Like, right. how many goalies are you taking over? I don't know. I think it's less than three. Yeah. I mean, two. I could think of two uh, Anaheim Mighty Ducks goalies that I might take over him. Uh, Ryan Miller, the Renaissance is here. Like he's back. 
You can take Ryan John Miller. Gibson, take Ryan Miller, sign me up. We can walk into those series. You take Miller, I'll take Vasilevsky, and we'll see what happens. Deal? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Come right. playoff time, Ryan Miller's a gamer. No, I mean, it, I'm I, counting I think, on him. I think you're right, though. It's, it's Gibson, and it, I, you know, I think there's a good argument for Marc-Andre Fleury. If there's someone out there who loves yeah. Pekka Rene. But, like, beyond that, I don't know. Carey Price? Yeah. I mean, he's healthy now. Carey Pri- it turns out when Carey Price is healthy, things are things are better for him. Yeah, but like still, like that puts Andre like you know five or six in the league, and you put that with that core yeah. of scorers and that defense. Like, I, I, I'm not gonna pick against him. That's for sure. Yeah. Um. Last thing I wanted to touch on before we get out of here, uh, the Calgary Flames, who before the season, I went back today and I was reading through certain previews about how teams like it's easy to um revise how we thought about these teams and like oh we knew Calgary was coming, but like no one really was expecting the kind of offensive explosion that they've had where they felt like the the poor man's Toronto and uh Tampa Bay which sounds like a, a shot but for them it's amazing that they're they're there like are you how surprised are you at how well Calgary has played this year yeah I'm surprised certainly I, you know I, I think I you know it wouldn't have surprised me if you told me they were going to be a playoff team I don't think I would have pegged them top four in the conference, much less as good as they've been. But I think a huge part of it is that trade with Carolina that they made that, like, ultimately, I think a lot of people thought Carolina won that trade. And I don't think Carolina got totally hosed or anything. Um, but at the same time, like, if – I don't – actually, maybe I do. I don't know. I mean, you know, Lindholm's just unreal. been unreal for Carolina this year. And Hannafin's, you know, he's, he's found his game there, it seems like. Um you know, Dougie Hamilton. Who do you think's been more valuable between the two of them? Because they've both been huge. Oh, Lindholm. For me, Lindholm, okay. no doubt. Um, especially with what he's been able to do for them. Like, I, I, yeah, I would take Lindholm there. But, you know, Hamilton was supposed to be, like, the big piece in that trade. And now it's like Carolina's, you know, supposed to be open to moving him. Like, that's it, crazy for the development that's happened since June there. Like, that's eight months' time. Um, so... No, I didn't see it coming, but I it also I'm not going to rule them out for anything from here on out. Okay. Um, do you think Bill Peters coaching this team has played a, a huge dividend, or no? Do you think it, that hasn't uh, been a big thing? No, it's crossed my mind for sure, and like you know, especially when like those two guys who we've just been talking about, like guess who they played for last year? Guess who knew them probably as well as anybody? Like Bill Peters. So. You know, you you get Lindholm in there, and and uh, and you get Hannafin in there, and Bill Peters has been coaching them in Carolina. Like, I don't know. I I don't think it's. Um, I don't think that'd be far fetched to say. Like, I can't say that I have an intimate enough knowledge of like that locker room and that you know the way that team runs that I could speak particularly educatedly about it. But I, you know, certainly that's that's a team where I think the GM and the coach deserve a ton of credit for the success. Do you think Johnny Gaudreau is the best underdog story in hockey this year? Best underdog story in hockey this year. I might say Dylan Strome, who got traded okay. from Arizona to Chicago, uh, was really underperforming and is like damn near a point per game back in Chicago. He was, you know, underdog. It's so hard to call a guy who was picked that high an underdog. But with the way things looked like they were going for him, it's kind of hard not to be happy for all the success for him that he's, he's been able to have there. Like, you know, I know Red Wings fans are going to not like the fact that he's with the Blackhawks and 
you know, maybe it is wrong to call him an underdog with that kind of pedigree, but with the way things, you know, people were really apprehensive about if he was really going to make it as, you know, a, a live up to his draft position. And, and all of a sudden he looks great in Chicago. So I, I don't know. That's maybe, maybe more comeback than underdog, but I guess that'd probably be my answer. Okay. I just, I have a soft spot for these like shorter guys, like the Kyler Murray, the Baker stuff. Like I love seeing these kind of stories where people just like write these guys off because they're apparently not big enough to be great players and then they're just like oh right we overthought this they're just really good at hockey and yeah i mean that's everywhere hockey for sure and johnny you know johnny Gaudreau probably changed that as much as anybody with like you know he was he was unreal in college and i mean there's i don't think anyone i mean i shouldn't say i don't think i know it'll happen but it's gonna get a lot harder to overlook people because of their size as as guys like johnny Gaudreau, guys like alex to bring it um continue to have the kind of success that they've had have you seen Jack Hughes? What he looks like at the uh, present time? No, I actually need to. I need to go see him. I wanted to go see him when he was at Michigan against Quinn earlier this year. I live embarrassingly close to Plymouth to have not gone and see him, so I've been catching a little bit of shit uh, for having not seen him live yet. I, but it, it, I will very much be there. There's a lot of guys on the NTDP who I need to see before this draft because it might be the best uh, NTDP U18 team they've ever had. So I got to see Jack. I want to see. Trevor Zegras, Matt Boldy, Cam York, Cole Caulfield. There's another one guy. If you like these these guys who are supposed to be too small but are just incredibly good at hockey, that's one you should watch. It's Cole Caulfield. Um, so no, Jack is very high on my list. I'm I'm uh, eager to see him play. I mean, I'm just eager for him to get in a Ducks uniform because he looks <laughs> like uh, Adam Banks in Mighty Ducks, like just 100%. Like, that's exactly who he looks like. And he looks 12, by the way. Like, I hope he's not going to be playing NHL anytime soon because um, this guy's got some growing to do. Um, but I'm all about it. And the Ducks might have the number one pick. So you get uh, Jack Hughes in Anaheim. You can go ahead and start printing the Adam Banks 2.0 shirts because that's what's on the way. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah, we'll have to see. We'll have to see how how viral that goes. I'm ready. I, I'm ready. Um, all right, man. Is there anything uh, that you have coming out this week that we should check out on theathletic.com where if you are not already a subscriber, I don't really know what the hell you're doing, but subscribe today. But is there anything that uh, we should check out specifically from you? Yeah, I got a couple of stories, actually, that I'd love to plug. I mean, today is sort of, you know, this is the trade deadline week. I, I ran through all the possible scenarios, like, you know, what could happen and what are the implications long-term for the Red Wings? That's your standard fare, um, you know, of, of trade deadline week fodder. The story that I'm really excited about came out this weekend. It's about a guy named Jason McCrimmon, uh, and he runs a youth hockey program in the inner city of Detroit, which there really is not a whole ton of accessible, officially sanctioned competitive youth hockey in Detroit, and Jason runs one of the only programs called Detroit Ice Dreams. Um, I was really fortunate to be able to spend some time with him and kind of tell the story of, of what he's doing there in inner-city Detroit. I think it's really important to the game. I think it's really important to the city. Uh, and I'd love if you wanted to check that out. That's on our website at uh, www.theathletic.com, and that'll be in our, uh, in our Red Wings tab. All right. I will check it out. Everybody else should. Max, keep up the great work at The Athletic, and uh, let's talk again soon. Thanks so much, Chase. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. 
I just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, Be sure to check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at Chase Double underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Uh, thank you for your support and we'll be back on another episode very soon. Thanks guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.